I'm in the phase because I'm 57 where my peers are going through this with their parents. And sometimes I, this is going to sound terrible, but I almost feel blessed that I got this out of the way before I had kids, (laughs) before I had pets in a house. So I fully Mm. relate to your point. It sounds luxurious to only have to tend to a dying person all day long. (laughs) Yeah. Just one person. Oh my gosh. Can I call it? Do mm-hmm. I call it? Mm-hmm. Hey, Hi, Grandma. Yeah, so, do you want to play, Grandma? You want to play that part from Measure Nine? Yep. Hello, fellow shit sisters and siblings. Our Reverend Rachel here, sporting a lisp from my new braces. Today, I'm interviewing Betsy Armstrong, who offers wisdoms from her personal and professional elder care experiences. We talk about state services that can help support elders who have adult children at a distance. And Betsy also puts in a sincere plug for engaging every elder about their own story. Before I introduce you to my friend and fellow writer, Betsy, Let me just recap why this monthly podcast exists. After accumulating 10 years and counting of elder care intel, I decided to create my irreverent empire of insights, anecdotes, and audio, all found on my website, thisisgettingold.com. Just add some dashes. In order to support the undertakings of you, my fellow shit sisters and siblings. The purpose of my monthly podcast is to provide empathy and education about the start, middle, and end of the elder care trenches. And to remind each other why we're all gathered here together, I start each episode with a grandma cameo. Today we're checking in on grandma after we went on a shopping trip and spent an inordinate amount of time with her new endocrine specialist. Get your earmuffs ready. It gets a little spicy around here. All right, Mother. This is a start. You're handing me $40. What is that for? Helping with your dress and coat. For what? For the wedding. What wedding? Where are you, Rachel? We're recording, Mother. You need to explain to people who are listening. My niece and your granddaughter. I mean, you're going to be the person who takes care of things at the wedding. (laughs) It's called the officiant. I'm the person that gets to say whatever I want to say to get them married. Oh, I see. Does that sound dangerous to you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, otherwise, no, it isn't dangerous because I know you're smart enough not to be dangerous. <laughs> but I'm capable of being dangerous. <laughs> So speaking of dangerous, how did I behave a couple days ago, Mother, after we finished a four-hour medical appointment for you? You were cranky. Mm Mm-hmm. Why? Because I had questioned the doctor, Mm -hmm. which you're supposed to do anyway. Uh Uh-huh. Have you ever not questioned something for your entire life? Have you ever made a decision in your entire life? Without pressure. 87 years. Maybe not. No, I don't think so. So you were at the doctor's office, and the doctor, as they all do, was thinking that I was being too pushy, too bossy, 
why was I pressuring you so much to make a decision? And the reason was because I know if you don't pressure you to make a decision in the moment, you'll never fuck make a decision. I'll never fuck make a decision. Exactly. So in the end of the day, mother, did you actually need to go home and read the paperwork she gave us and the side effects to decide whether or not you get this shot that will help your bone density mm-hmm. and your fragility? Or was it that you insisted on holding onto this conspiracy theory notion that the side effect was kidney stones? And even though you raised that in the appointment and the doctor immediately debunked it, you decided that you had to sit around and think about this thing that you know. And I knew that you were using your fake medical degree to not make a decision. And she was so patient with you. She wanted to just let you have more time and not let your daughter pressure you. And your daughter said, what? After this was all over and we sat eating Shake Shack cheese fries that I didn't even order cheese on, what did your daughter say? after spending four hours of her life watching you have indecision about something that will help your fragile osteoporosis. Probably something to do There was a lot of yelling. There was a lot of swearing. And what was the main point that I made about what I need you to do, Mother? I needed to make a decision. Well, above and beyond making a decision, When there's an adult child who works full time and has a child and has a life and has interests and Mm. has 10 follow-up appointments with the heart doctor and the pulmonologist and the astronologist and the (laughs) astrologist and all these other people, when one appointment that she thought was going to be an hour long turns into four hours of her life and her mother refuses to make a decision which requires the adult daughter to have to do follow-up emails and calls and appointments to decide what they're going to do next. What did I suggest might be more helpful in that moment for the elder to do? Maybe not make it harder for the adult child? I wasn't trying to make it harder for you. Mm -hmm. I was just... I was just wondering, because there had been a whole bit that you hadn't heard about. I don't... But that's the point! That is the point! It's past. It's debunked. It's not real. Let's assume that the modern, young, smart, funny, savvy doctor, maybe, has been trained to know the most recent information. So that if you're conjuring stuff from your past, and she said that's no longer true, maybe we can just believe her truth and make a decision. Do we think that's possible? Probably. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do we even remember what it is that you're personally responsible for doing to make sure that you don't have 20,000 fractures every day? My responsibility is to take the pill. And? (laughs) Oh, my God. Are you serious again with your amnesia? What else do you need to be doing, Mother? Eating ice cream. And? Milk. And? Oh, yogurt. And? Cheese. A dairy product. Cheese. What? Cheese! Oh, my God. Where are your hearing aids? And what else are you supposed to be doing? Walking a little more. How much is a little more? He said about five minutes more. (laughs)
<laughs> because what is the rest of your exercise comprised Walking. of? Where? Down to eat. <laughs> From your room? Like, yeah. what, 50 feet to each meal and back again? Right. Mm-hmm. Got marathons every day. It is a good marathon, I'll tell you. <laughs> All right. Do you have any words of wisdom for any other adult children managing their elders' ridiculous ideas about health care? Well, at this age, I'm sitting here thinking, ah, I've got another heart appointment. They told me the heart corrected itself. Mm-hmm. So why am I having all this heart appointment again? How do you think the heart corrected itself, Mother? Well, they said it's not flopping. <laughs> Why do you think it's not flopping anymore? <laughs> oh, God, Grandma's going to die of a heart attack from laughing too hard. Do you think that miraculously happened to your 87-year-old heart? It just stopped flopping? One day it almost killed you dead? Well, the, the woman who gave me my test said, well, it's corrected. Yeah, I wonder how that happened. What do you think they did? What did they do? Maybe they gave you a ton of medicine that they now have to manage to make sure the medicine is making it not be so floppy so that you can be alive. It's not a goddamn miracle, Mom. It's not yeah. like you self-cured. I know that was a long appointment. It was a pain. All this crap starts piling up now, and you think, oh, right, right. Now? Now it starts piling up? How old are you? 87. Mm -hmm. It's been piling up for years. Yeah, it's been a lot of piling. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Has yours been piling up, too? <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time to return to our regularly scheduled broadcasting, which, as usual, includes critter noises, and this time the nasally sounds of a stuffed-up Reverend Rachel. I'm looking forward to upping my audio game in next month's podcast. Be sure to tune in for my 2.0 audio arrival. <laughs> So, Betsy, I really appreciate you throwing your name in the hat because you have got so many different points of view on the conversation that I like to have in these podcasts. So you and I are part of a writing cohort and all of us burst our platforms in the time that we have known each other and have been each other's support. And so having you on here is both selfish for me, but it also allows me to support you and your efforts and your intuitive eating program. Give people an overview of what your passion is and what people can find if they seek you out. Okay. People can find me at BetsyArmstrong.com. I'm an intuitive eating coach. I help women heal their relationship with food in their bodies. We all seem to have develop stories in our head based on the culture around us that always wants us to be thinner, smaller, cuter, sweeter. <laughs> <laughs> and intuitive eating is sort of pushing away all those diet messages and getting back in touch with your internal compass as far as hunger, fullness, satisfaction, and moving your body. So it's a combination of taking care of yourself by listening internally and pushing away those external messages that society tells you. We're all given a genetic blueprint of how our bodies are going to be. And I always say, would you try to change your eye color through willpower? Mm. We can't change our basic 
cell structure and bone structure. That is something that is encoded. Yet we try so hard and in the process, not only do we do damage to our bodies, but we really mess up our minds. <laughs> you I, know, can, with these- I can relate to all of that. Is it anybody who knows me knows I am a comfort food eater who was mm-hmm. born into the body of a German farm girl. <laughs> so I'm Norwegian and I, you know, my body was built to last through cold winters and scale fjords. <laughs> it's not supposed to be on a beach in Miami, like in a bikini floating around. <laughs> yeah. That's very freeing to me because I definitely spent many younger years trying to live up to something my body can't do. And not even looks, but temperature. I hate the heat. I can't take it. I sweat. I turn red. It's taken me decades to be like, I'm just not meant to do those things. So why don't I try not to be that person. I'm the type of person everybody's like, what's your problem? What are you complaining about? I'm like, if you were in my head, knowing all the (laughs) thoughts I've had for 48 years about my body, it's a scary place. So you have gone through personal elder care experiences about eight years ago by my definitions of start, middle, and end, I think it's correct to say that you are at the end of your journey. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. So, so we'll have some great perspective from you on what it's like to basically be on the other side. And then you've got within those personal uh, experiences, some pretty classic anecdotes that we all appreciate, <laughs> because like I say, you will cry. So you might as well laugh as you go through these things. And then I want to dovetail into your professional experiences. So we had actually backed out of the fact that you did work for the Illinois Department of Aging for several years. I think it will be really interesting to give my listeners perspective on what it's like to be on the front lines with the elders we all have. For example, my father was in basically daycare for dad, (laughs) going Mm -hmm. to a day center. And my Mm -hmm. mom did the same. And even though I have a counseling degree, and I'm steeped in elder care work within my family, it, it, it takes a very special person to work in this world and to work with the family. So I know you're a special person. So it'll be great just to hear what it was like for you on the front lines. So Betsy, when did your personal experiences happen relative to when were you working in elder care? What was that timeline like for you? So my personal elder care experiences go way back to 1987, (laughs) which is when my mom became ill with colon cancer. It was Hmm. before colonoscopies. So there were all kinds of strange symptoms. They found out when it was really too late, it had already metastasized to her liver. But in 1987, I was in college getting my undergraduate degree and I lived in the same city. I lived in Minneapolis where my mom and stepdad were, and she went downhill very quickly. And one of the things that needed to happen was she needed a daily injection that my stepdad just couldn't bring himself to do. So every day after work, I had to go to my parents' house a half hour away. So I dropped out of school to work full time this is where some of these messy family situations that Mm -hmm. you end up in going, Mm -hmm. who's going to do this and how can we all like round the clock care? Uh, My mom's wish was that she died at home if at all possible. So I would work eight hours a day at the admissions office where I was going to school. 
and then drive over to my parents and give my mom a shot and hang out a little bit and then maybe wow. go back to my place and eat dinner. And then on the weekends, my stepdad's job required him to travel. So I spent most Fridays through Sundays with my mom. Wow. Um, my mom was 46 and I was oh. 23. And so there was a lot of just the, the shock of having somebody who had really never been sick a day in her life, all of a sudden wow. need all this care. And I would say it's a lot like when an older person has a fall or mm-hmm. some kind of medical crisis and all of a sudden everyone's all hands on deck, you know? Yeah. Let's pause on that for a second because mm-hmm. I haven't had reason to talk to people or not talk to people based on the relative age the caregiving situation that they were in. Mm -hmm. But in your instance, in the time that we've gotten to know each other in our writing group conversations, you and uh, another person have in common what we'd call mother loss, which functionally expresses the fact that you lost somebody way too young. And so in that sense, in our conversations, we categorize that as a different experience than what I'm talking about with elder care. But what you just Mm -hmm. described is the caregiving conundrum. It doesn't matter how old that person is. And most of the people that I'm talking to, we're talking about parents. Mm -hmm. So in that Mm -hmm. sense, she was your elder, right? Mm -hmm. So I think everything that you're describing is very much what many of us find ourselves facing, some of the hard decisions and how it impacts our own life in order to support whatever oftentimes crisis we find ourselves in. Absolutely. So how did that unfold with you? You know, how much time was there for caregiving and your support of your mom? I definitely pushed aside a lot of my life while that Mm. was happening. And I did so very willingly being that young. It was like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? I lived on my own. I wasn't dating anyone and it was my entire life. So it was a really isolating experience. Now I'm in the phase because I'm 57 where my peers are going through this with their parents. And sometimes I, this is going to sound terrible, but I almost feel blessed that I got this out of the way before I had kids, before I had pets in a house. I had a pretty simple situation in a way when this stuff happened to me. Because Um, you had the luxury of clearing your plate to do that. right? Right. Like I was able to, you know, drop out of school and I had a part-time job at the University of Minnesota admissions office. So Mm -hmm. it dovetailed where there was an opening and my boss let me take that opening. So I got to work full time. I know it was really great. Of course, it's the same boss that told me when my mom passed away, she died on Christmas Eve. And my boss said, oh, you're lucky she died that day because you had the day off. (gasps) Believe it. The things people say. So yeah, there's, there's those kind of comments too coming from the outside people who just have no clue what you're going through. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, and my mind is going a million different places because again, Mm -hmm. it it was necessarily intuitive for me to say, well, let's spend, you know, time talking about your mom's situation, but Mm -hmm. it's so relevant in the sense of the sandwich generation piece, Mm -hmm. what happens where people are crunched. That's really what led me to do this is the exhaustion Mm -hmm. of juggling 
full-time job and real life and personal aspirations and needs and children and spouses. So I fully relate to your point. It sounds luxurious to only have to tend to a dying person all day long. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Just one person. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. And then the mm-hmm. second part is I've noticed lately my workplace does a very nice job of offering services. And what I'm very appreciative of, they're very mindful, not just of caregiving children, but of elders. And that's usually a silent, invisible fact. And even though your boss sounds like a dope at the end of your process, most bosses are not in a position to say, oh, hey, we have another full-time job over here. It seems like you need it. Why do you take it? Usually Mm -hmm. it's the employee who has to go into the boss and be like, I'm struggling. I have to take another day off. I I just happened to have 10 extra vacation days this year because I had an anniversary year and my company was Mm -hmm. very generous and offered us all five COVID days in case there was illness within the family. If I didn't have those, I would not have covered my everyday grandma escapades, Mm -hmm. the hospital visits and the follow-up visits. This is the first year in 10 years that I didn't have to either take vacation time away from myself or scramble to cover these things that I didn't know I was going to have to pre-plan to have time off for. So all very relevant. So you said that was 1987. Walk me through the timeline. I know you also had, I think it was your dad. So seven years after my mom passed, my dad was sick. He was, he probably was sick before that he died of lung cancer Mm. and he smoked like five packs a day. (laughs) My parents were divorced. My dad lived in California. My brother lived in Minnesota and I had graduated from college, moved to Chicago for my job. I visited my dad. We saw each other probably twice a year just because California and vacation time. He was 71. He had like six years of retirement where he could come and visit, but he didn't really that much. And so one day I get a call. I knew he wasn't doing well, but I didn't realize how bad it had gotten. His sister called me and said, your dad needs help. He's really sick and you have to come now. And I know. And I was kind of like, really? And she's like, yes, I can't handle this anymore. And so she called my brother, said the same thing. I'll never forget. It was St. Patrick's day. (laughs) I literally got in my car. I made it to Colorado (laughs) in 19 hours. And then I had to stop because I was by myself. So I found a hotel and slept. And then I got up the next day and made it into Las Vegas. It was where he retired. And walking in to see my dad in a hospital bed in his living room. Oh my God. Basically no idea. pajama bottoms. No. And that's part of how my dad was. He was one of those, I don't need any help. I can do everything myself. God. (laughs) Wait, that sounds really familiar. We were basically managing his symptoms. And because it was such a shock, we were trying to piece together some kind of care plan for him. We were probably there in Nevada for about a month. We were like, well, what should we do? The doctor told us he was terminal, but he wasn't necessarily in hospice. My dad was so secretive about this. And I suspect 
well, I know that other elders do this. They're like, they, they put on a front of I'm fine. I'm fine. Whereas at home, things are completely falling apart. And that's what was happening with my dad. And so my brother and I come in and we're sorting through bills and I took him to the doctor and the doctor basically yelled at me. He's terminal. What do you want me to do? And I'm like, (gasps) I didn't know. Oh my God. Along the way, different moments in my blogs, I tend to sprinkle in like I talk softly and I carry a big Mm -hmm. smile, but I never, ever take no for an answer. These people in their own ways are beaten down. I'm sure when we segue into your professional experience, we'll hear why, but man, the lack of bedside manner, the lack of empathy, the lack of context when they have any individual patient or family coming to them is sometimes appalling. Yeah. I felt so shamed by him. Mm -hmm. When your parent doesn't tell you, you can't respond. (laughs) Right? Would he just have died in his hospital bed in his house in Las Vegas? One day he wouldn't answer the phone and we just feel like what the hell happened? And play that out. You know me well enough Mm -hmm. to know that I go to the dark side. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Would that have been in some ways preferable to your dad, to you? Is he the type of guy who would have been like, you know what? let me ride out into the sunset on my own. And then Mm -hmm. you guys don't have to spend a month sorting things out and getting yelled at by the doctor. Do you think about that in retrospect? Yeah. My dad was definitely gruff. He grew up during the depression. He had to take over his family farm when he was 14 years old, when his father died and his mom made him drop out of eighth grade to run the family farm. So to answer your question, it probably would have been easier just from a logistical standpoint, Mm -hmm. but from an emotional standpoint, that would have been devastating. In retrospect, having time to just talk and ask him questions about his life. We're sitting there with him hanging out and two men come to the door and they're like, hi, Dell. And my brother and I look at our dad and say, who are these people? (laughs) And he said, oh, they're my twin brothers. (gasps) We we never knew he had brothers when he was 14 and his mom um, made him take over the farm. His brothers were already gone and they were older and they should have come back to do this. He was so pissed at them. He didn't speak to them. He died when he was 71. So between age 14 and age 70, he never mentioned the fact that we had two uncles. Oh my God. I know. Because they didn't come back to the farm, but then they showed up that day when you were at the house to basically say goodbye. Is that what happened? Right. That's what happened. How was that for your dad? Well, again, this is my family. (laughs) They, they just acted like they knew us. Everyone acted like, Oh, Hey, it's nice to meet you, uncle Howard. Okay. (laughs) And yeah. And it was the weirdest thing. And honestly, Rachel, I, now that I think of it, I've never seen them since they were there one day and then they were gone and I never saw them again. Wow. The reason I bring it up is that my dad, he just kind of sat my brother and I down and he told us all this stuff about his life. I didn't know he had to drop out of school when he was 14. I never knew either of his parents because they were dead by the time I was born. But he told me, my mother was a mean old lady. And when she died, I was happy. I sold that farm and I moved to Minneapolis and started my life. Oh my God. Wow. (laughs) And he, he also made a couple other pronouncements, which I thought were hilarious. One was... 
that he had no other children. So if anyone should come to my brother and I and claim to be our sibling, we should know (laughs) that he had produced no other heirs and he didn't have any money. I don't know why this was so important. And I was just like, okay, good to know, dad. Thanks for the info. That's awesome. And he also put a clause in his will that if my brother and I fought over the money, whoever filed a suit against the other one would be cut out of the will. (laughs) And he also told us, I knew he was an atheist, but he basically said, I don't believe in God. I've had a good life. When this is over, it's over. I don't want a funeral. Cremate me and throw the ashes away, basically. (laughs) My brother has his ashes every now and then we're like, what should we do with dad? I don't know. What should we do with dad? He's in your basement. You You can get one of those Oscar Sesame street trash cans for an urn. And then you technically, you know, and that's one of the reasons I went into elder care because I love these stories that older Mm. people tell they have such interesting lives. It makes me sad that our society doesn't understand the charm of the nostalgia and the stories and the history. I think about my dad, he was born in 1924. They barely had cars. He went from a farm in North Dakota to watching a man walk on the moon. And to think about the cultural context of all that they've experienced. It's so cool to talk to these people. Yeah. So tell me, was there, was there a direct connection for you having gone through the caregiving for your mom and the elder support for your dad going into the professional work? There was in the sense that when my dad passed, I decided to go back to grad school to become a counselor. And my dad would never have stood for me going to graduate school. When I had a job, I had a good job. Why would I quit it and spend more money on (laughs) education when I already had an education? So when he passed, it kind of freed me up to go, now what do I really want to do? I don't have to be the practical kid anymore. I went to grad school for counseling. I went in with the intention really of, of becoming a therapist. I met my husband right before grad school. So I came out, graduated, got married, like all in the same summer and got my first job. I ended up on this crisis hotline and was, became the head of the suicidal homicidal cases. It was basically an employee assistance program. They offered benefits to people at companies so they could call and get a variety of services. And let's pause on that. How few people realize that their jobs offer things like that. So whether it's personal counseling, addiction, Mm -hmm. caregiving for children, caregiving for elders, I tend to find in my passing friend and family conversations about elder stuff, it's not often a lack of resource that is the problem. It's a lack of knowledge of how many things are out there to tap Mm -hmm. into. Yeah. I think it's becoming more and more common. People should look into if they work for companies with benefits, especially now with COVID and like what you said your company was doing, giving people extra days for this kind of caretaking or caregiving. That was explained to me when I started working in elder care. Really? We don't caretake, we care give. Yes. (laughs) 
So as far as elder care, what happened is I quit the crisis EAP line and I sought out the job at the Department of Aging. And that's one thing that I think most people don't think of, especially if they're in a situation where they've never had to tap into any state or governmental programs. Right. I think most people's entry into that is Medicaid or exactly. Medicare. Exactly. And so your state department on aging, actually, in, at least in Illinois, they have caseworkers. Their job is to take a call from somebody, whether it's a caregiver or an elder who needs help, and they will send someone out to do assessments. And depending on whether you're willing to share your financial situation, their uh, intent was to keep people in homes instead exactly. of putting them in the either agent emergency rooms, agent place movement. Exactly. Yeah. So I was a case manager, do the assessments and look at their environment and then try to put services in place. And in some cases, the state pays for someone to come in and clean exactly. or do a light housekeeping or light medical care. I think that's a resource that people are either ashamed to tap into. They think, why should I ask someone else? I should be able to do this. Right. Um, we grew up in a GE town and it was very much this notion that you work for a big, you work for the state, you work for a GE, you're taking care for the rest of your life. There's this notion mm -hmm. in America that everybody's supposed to be sitting around saving for retirement, that you have the ability to save for retirement, that there's extra money left over to do that. So mm -hmm. in my experience, the shame comes in because you are supposed to be self-sufficient and if you're not, you don't realize there's actually a safety net for that situation. My parents had nothing. So mm -hmm. we backed very quickly with the help of an excellent elder care lawyer. I can't recommend enough working with a specific elder care lawyer if you need it to find those resources and get them on community Medicaid. Everything my, I've described with my dad was all state funded, the daycare, the home help. I did supplement on my own with some private paid grocery shopping or things like that. But in the end, when we put, sent my mom to Virginia and we left him in his own apartment, he was self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. I wasn't funding his situation at all. And most people, I think, don't realize that the stress I hear in the sandwich generation peers is, oh my God, I either don't know if my parents have it under control and therefore it'll be my problem, or my parents don't have it under control and therefore it'll be my problem. And what I try to disabuse people of is financially, technically, you're not on the hook for anything. And there's tons and tons of resources for medical equipment, et cetera. Are you going to have to manage the logistics long distance? Yeah, that part sucks. <laughs> yeah, but totally. there's a, there's a mm -hmm. case manager to your point that hopefully can support you on the ground. Yeah. In that arena is that I was getting calls from sons and daughters out of state mm -hmm. who would say, I'm calling because my mom, I, she would hate it that I'm calling you, but right. I want you to go, you know, knock on the door. <laughs> There were times that I would go knock on a door and the person answering would be like, who are you? Why are you here? And mm -hmm. no, I don't want you to come in. In the society we live in today, we've all moved and scattered. families aren't in a community together anymore. And so mm -hmm. that is something for people to know when you're not in the same state as your elder, 
to call that state's department on aging for help. Mm -hmm. They're on the ground and they could at least send somebody to do an assessment and get an overview of what's going on. To your point, our elders are sometimes ashamed of the fact Mm -hmm. that they haven't saved enough money or that they're struggling. So to have kind of the objective observer come in from outside of course, I'd recommend telling your parents, or say, hey, I called this place and they're going to send somebody. So it's not like this, who the hell are you and what are you doing? I felt very useful and I did like it. I get the services in place and then I go visit them to make sure oh, they're okay. Right. And then just talk because that's the other thing. They're by themselves a lot of right. times in their homes. Exactly. And the older they get, the fewer people there are in exactly. their peer group that are still around or able to go visit with each mm-hmm. other. There are all these services like daycare, which mm-hmm. again, sounds like something you put your preschooler in, but they had it. <laughs> for elders too. And the assisted living versus nursing homes, there's so many different levels of care Mm -hmm. that people aren't aware of. It's not just, we're going to put you in a nursing home until you die. So A, to know that there's so many services for the caregiver to help in the situation long distance. B, to know there was a guy next door. He had friends and he had lots of neighbors checking him, but he needed companionship, didn't want to accept it in any formal form. So instead, my elder care buddy basically duped him into having a buddy visit every day. And they just sat on the porch for hours and hours and hours. But in the background, she's getting his groceries and making sure he was eating. I had many, many resources like that behind me, helping my parents. And they were constantly confused about who was doing what and why. But in the Mm -hmm. end, one of them was like a son. And fascinating, they had a firstborn child named Mark, who they found sadly dead in a crib at two weeks Mm -hmm. old. And sure enough, at the end of my dad's life, it was a college kid named Mark, who was his buddy doing his grocery shopping. It was very, very full circle sweet. So yes, I just can't say enough that before anybody has to do an institution or move out of their home or anything, there's so, so, so many services people can leverage. And even when you start saying things like, well, assisted living and and, um, nursing home, et cetera, I think that's when people start hyperventilating because that seems like such a big choice. It seems like that's when you need the money on the table, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother is in one of the most gorgeous homes for elders, better than any $12,000 a year private paid thing I've ever seen. And she is functionally in it for free. So they have a mission Mm -hmm to support <laughs> elders who ha- don't have many finances and by Boston standards, she's poverty level. So when we moved mm-hmm. her up here, that's what she qualified for. I had no idea a place like this could or would exist. By definition, it's called a rest home, which all of us, I feel like we think that's an antiquated term. This place has only ever been a rest home, which explains why it's so good for wow. decades and decades and decades have been catering mm-hmm. to this audience. So I just say that to to offer to people like Shangri-La is actually out there. You just have to know Mm -hmm. how to find it and people shouldn't freeze and, and settle for less than probably what their elder can receive. So as we're talking through all this, tell me about some of the characters. I did have one specific client. She got in my head. This was a, a person who had been referred by a neighbor and she was so flamboyant. Curiosity, um, who referred you to her? Was it family or neighbors? Neighbor. She had no family. So this is a woman who I think her idea of who she was, was 
how she managed to get through her life. I'm mm-hmm. this fantastic creative. I worked for a theater and she wasn't an actress, but she should have been. It took me a couple tries to get in there, but then I got in and she started like, who are you? And what can I get from you? My instruction for anybody dealing with this kind of person is to get your boundaries set and Mm -hmm. to stick to them. At certain points, she was like, your wedding ring looks really expensive. Could you give me some money for groceries? Wow. And I was like, you know, that's not allowed. And there was a part of me that wanted to. I also knew not only would Doug, my husband, kill me if I started buying, you know, buying, <laughs> buying, buying groceries for the whole state of Illinois. It's not appropriate. That's not a sustainable system. The boundaries are important because you can't take on every neighbor, Mm -hmm. every elder in your universe, even your own parents, you have to protect Mm -hmm. yourself. And then there are services that can hopefully supplement anything else like that in your experience, how you can be there for any elder, but also protect yourself. Well, what I ended up doing with that client, which she loved, I started doing, tell me your life story. Because a person like that, there's nothing they love better than to talk about themselves. This is something I did with a lot of people because I just really loved hearing their stories. And, yeah. and I picture myself when I'm 90 and nobody's around and I'll, I'll want to talk to somebody and tell them about <laughs> myself. Just get them to start telling you from the minute you were born, where are mm-hmm. you from? Who did you meet? Who was your best friend? What's your favorite color? I think it's such a validating process for these people who honestly people aren't paying attention to them. And that's why they're like, Hey, over here, over here. Like, (laughs) What will you do for me today? Make it about them, but not about what you're doing for them. What you're doing for them is listening to them. That's all you have to do. I had a therapist teach me and we practiced. I really wish I could, but I can't. And don't say anything else. You don't need to give her an excuse. That's actually great. You're reminding me we're moving off of personal family caregivers, which of course has its own fun dynamic of, I don't want to let my dad talk, but it's precisely what I did with my neighbor next door. It's how my parents raised me. You will go Mm -hmm. over next door and check on old lady Agatha and see Mm -hmm. if her dogs have eaten her yet. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then there was the time she wasn't a taker, but she was, she was Swedish born. Like, so she had different Mm -hmm. sensibility. And there was the time she asked my dad to come over and help her turns out to bathe and my mother was not so happy about that (laughs) the next door neighbor he's since passed but I watch myself Mm -hmm. raising my child in the same way you will go over when John calls your name Mm -hmm. and talk to him you will wave to him every time you see him you will go sit on the porch for 10 minutes which might turn into an hour (laughs) and listen to the stories there was this woman her name was Eleanor and she lived in a hotel, but it was actually a rest home. Lots of elders lived in this community. So I would visit her. She was one of those really funny little old ladies who had a story to tell all the time. (laughs) She had been engaged six or seven times, according to her, her first fiance died World War II. And then after that, all the men wanted her, even at this hotel, she was constantly getting asked (laughs) to be married. I don't know the truth of that. But then one day I was talking to her and she's like, do you know what happens at one in the morning around here? We get porn on the television. (laughs) I'm like, really? (laughs) Do you watch it? She's like, yeah, I like it a lot. (laughs) And she's like, 
but I'm not paying for that, am I? So the moral so, yeah. of the story is elders are still interested in sex too. Yes. She talked a lot about marriage and porn. <laughs> <laughs> And then my grandmother, oh my gosh, my grandmother grew up during the depression. So she remembered the day the banks failed. Hmm. And this was in 2008, right around the whole housing crisis situation. Okay. And at this point, my grandfather had died. My grandma still lived on her own and something happened. I still, to this day, don't know what it was, but she went to the bank and took out all of her money. My brother was her power of attorney for finances. So he had set up, you know, the checking account and the automatic bill pays and everything. And she just went to the bank and cashed it all out and brought it (laughs) home in a paper bag. My brother calls me and he's like, you'll never guess what grandma did. So (laughs) he tells me and he goes, I was so pissed because I just gotten it all set up. And then she calls me and says, I did a really funny thing today, Paul. What grandma? I took all my money out and it's in a paper bag under my mattress. And I think I probably shouldn't have done that. (laughs) (laughs) My brother was like, yeah, grandma, you shouldn't have done that. So what's the ethical responsibility of the people who are witness to some of these choices to protect them? It's a a tricky territory. It's hard Mm -hmm. to negotiate. Let's say grandma was mugged on the way home and she lost all that money your brother would probably turn to the bank and be like what the hell did you do letting her take that out Mm -hmm. so it's a really important topic I'm just glad that yours is just a funny delightful ending (laughs) I know because yeah that could have gone really wrong especially because grandma liked to gamble I mean that would have been really bad it's like I'm going to the casino with my bag of money oh my god have been delightful and patient with all my tech issues today. (laughs) And I appreciate that you've got critters in the background. Any last parting thoughts? The only thing I can say, and it's probably because I wasn't always the most patient person, (laughs) these situations are so highly charged emotionally, is to try to keep your cool and think about the long term and how these may be the last times you're spending with these people. I I have a personal thing about having no regrets in my life because my mom died so young. It was something that really sticks with me. I never wanted to leave anything unsaid to the people I love and to just try to be as patient and gentle as you can, even if they don't deserve it. Sometimes. <laughs> that was because, the thought running through my head about my dad. Yeah, <laughs> I know we do the best we can. And I think that's the flip side of it is to just yeah. be gentle with yourself because you're doing the best you can yeah. and, it, and it's life. It's so hard. And this is the hardest thing. It is the hardest thing because they are impacting your life, probably not intentionally, but with whatever mm-hmm. end of life moment they're going through. You're mm-hmm. trying to sustain your well-being, your job, whatever the situation mm-hmm. may be. But where I deeply, deeply relate to that point and wholeheartedly agree, if I were to tell you my last words to my dad on the phone and what that conversation was like by anybody's standard, that would be a very regretful moment. And mm-hmm. I would beat myself up for the rest of my life and have to do tons of therapy because it was my dad. <laughs> It was very contextual for that situation. I have not lost an ounce of sleep over it because I knew that he knew all the other things that I had done for him, years of support in every sense. 
he was very, very aware of and very appreciative in his own way. So the actual moment, not so good. Was I patient throughout the whole time with him? Not so much. But did we have our own love language? Yes. By comparison, my mom, to your point, frail mm-hmm. little adorable thing that you all get to hear on my podcast. I am very, very intentional of going out of our normal family comfort zone to say, I love you. Every time I leave her, I'll say, especially lately, I'm like, love you, mom, because I'm not sure you're <laughs> going to be alive. Like that, like that. <laughs> and the yeah. nicest part about it is our child. We didn't, we didn't try to make him the kid that especially I wasn't, but he is an I love you kid. I love you, grandma. Oh. I love you. And he's constantly offering to her until she finally gets ready to offer it back. <laughs> it, <laughs> it doesn't come naturally. So, mm-hmm. you know, she gets that from the next yeah. generation, constant reminder of how much we would miss her when she's gone. So I do appreciate ending on that note. Thank you, Betsy. Well, thank you again for having me, Rachel. You're oh so goodness. fun to talk to. I could go oh, on. I know we won't because right? your listeners probably don't want to hear me go on and on. <laughs> Are you still going? Follow my monthly podcast for free on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your irreverent radio. In between, you can find support, education, and hundreds of resources on my website, thisisgettingold.com. Just add some dashes. Sign up for my newsletter to receive my latest insights, anecdotes, audio, and ever-growing list of shit. Performing my theme music is my mom and my son. My production partner is Michelle Rado of Flying Pig Audio, and I am Irreverent Rachel leaving you with some classic older elder anecdotes and an almost cameo by Gatsby the Catsby. Now, go embrace your own irreverence. Yay, I got it. He was on oxygen, as you know, because you drew a cartoon of it. He was still smoking (laughs) right next to his oxygen tank. I do love mm -hmm. that your dad's logic was like, oh, please. Why would I make a trip to the bathroom for that? Right I can here. just pee Let's... in a pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> and then when it, when I set myself on fire, I'll just pour urine on the fire <laughs> to put it out. Education was always so important to my dad because he didn't have one. So he was very adamant that we go to college. But once mm-hmm. we did that, it was like, okay, now you work <laughs> and you don't spend money and you just work the rest of your life. <laughs> I could quote all kinds of things. It's like, life isn't supposed to be fun. You know, it builds character. All those things that that generation says were said to me by my dad to get me out of the notion that I should have a happy, fulfilled life. <laughs> that, I should care about happiness beyond survival. Silly, silly girl. Oh, kitty. Hi, kitty. What's the kitty's name? That's Gatsby. Gatsby the Catsby. He might even talk while we're here. I used to make my cat talk all the time with that. You know, I know. Gatsby. Meow. 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 Oh, he's not going to do it. Okay. I'm sure (laughs) that's going to be fascinating for your listeners. (laughs) 